0: Our text is in Revelation 12. I'll read the entire chapter, 17 verses. Now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in the heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God, day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that this has all come to pass and that Your plans will prevail on the earth. We ask You to awaken us uh, in both spirit and mind that we would see ourselves as part of these plans, that we would not be seduced away by the world. We give You thanks. For your kindness and for your presence in jesus name amen if you know neither the enemy nor yourself you will succumb in every battle if you know yourself but not the enemy for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat if you know the enemy and you know yourself you need not fear the result of a hundred battles this is an excerpt from Sun Tzu, Art of War. He was a Chinese general who wrote this in the fifth century AD, and it's been resurrected in recent years. It's very popular uh, amongst military strategists to study Sun Tzu. Last September, I was at a, one of these variety shops where lot, all these people have their own booths to sell their stuff, and uh, I bought a little red book. Anybody know what the little red book is? It's Mao Zedong's sayings back that led to the uh, Cultural Revolution in China. It was not in Chinese, it was in English. It was published in San Francisco with this big disclaimer from the federal government saying that they did not support the beliefs of this booklet. Um, But Chairman Mao was also a famous Chinese general. And I believe he probably had studied Sun Tzu uh, very, very thoroughly. Because when you read his little red book, he embodied a lot of that same logic, a lot of that same um, tactical advice to whomever would listen. We have an enemy, and we have had that enemy all of our lives, all of the existence of the earth. In two months, I will have been a Christian for 40 years. And that's its kind of shocking to me. In part, I think it's shocking not because I'm getting older, but because I, like Ben Franklin said, life's tragedy is that we get old too soon and why too late. For too long, I didn't take... This spiritual battle seriously enough and I can't say that I do still it's very easy to do this it's very easy to not take this battle seriously you're young you get a job you get a wife she gives you children you have a house and a home you become very busy and your life becomes filled with things that are very pleasurable books to read, games to play, vacations to plan, movies to watch. Lots of adventures are possible in this life. And so, in summary, there are many, many, many distractions in our lives that prevent us from taking this spiritual battle entirely seriously. War can be exhausting i've read a lot about war i haven't been in it thankfully Uh, a real bullets flying type of war and it can be exhausting you're you're terrified it's long periods of boredom punctuated by periods of sheer terror and we can't avoid this war so easily so easily You miss a battle. You don't get up to do your morning devotion. You don't attend a worship service or a prayer meeting. You don't memorize the verse that you had committed to memorize a few weeks ago. You've missed a battle, and we know how that works. You don't just miss one battle, do you? It becomes easier and easier to miss battles. And before long you don't realize that there's a war going on. You are oblivious to it because you're not active in it. But in the short term, weeks, months, even years, you might not suffer repercussions of ignoring this war. And yet, eventually, you do. And then the repercussions can be very serious for you personally as well as for all of us societally. We see this. We're living this right now. We were a great Christian nation. We were. Not everybody was Christian, but yet we had a Christian culture and people had to toe the line in light of that Christian culture. Yet, that is no longer the case. It's diminishing. Now, I can't continue talking about this topic because this topic is our last topic in the series that we're going to cover and so today is the first message the title is know your enemy next week master your weaponry the following week engage your allies and then the last week we will return to this and so I'm giving you a few weeks to think about this to reflect on this battle that we're all supposed to be engaged in that we're all supposed to be getting bloodied in. So, know your enemy. It is sobering when you realize the significance of the war that is going on. And to acknowledge the reality for much of the time. You've been lounging in the rear. You've been off on a month-long r You've been a deserter. From the battles. You've left your comrades. You've not been there for them when they needed you. They don't always tell you that. They know who their soldiers are. They know who they can rely on. You might not be one of them. You've never been there for them, and so they don't expect you to be there for them. And this is sad, isn't it? It's sad that we can Let people down so consistently that they don't expect us to be there for them, to help them. Now, I'm being kind of hard on you, perhaps, but I speak to all of us. I speak mostly to myself. And I think that many in this church are spiritual warriors. And I am so thankful that you are fighting, that you're on the lines, that you're there so much more often than I am. Satan and his demonic forces are at work all the time. They never rest. They never take vacations. They always are battling. They're always ready for the battle. And so must we be if we're going to take it seriously, if we're going to take the war seriously. I believe I shared this a while back. I don't know how long. It could be a year or ten years. But the first Terminator movie released in 1984... Kyle Reese, this soldier from the future, has come back in time to save Sarah Connor. They've just witnessed the Terminator killing a bunch of people, and she's freaked out. She's trying to run away from him, but he turns to her in the car and says this, Listen and understand. That Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity, remorse, or fear. And it absolutely won't stop until you are dead. Like I said a minute ago, we must take the battle that we're in seriously. Not all will. Not all know we're in a battle. Not all acknowledge that there is a battle going on. Many people that come to church don't know there's a battle going on. And yet it does, it's relentless. This title is Know Your Enemy, and yet the title could be Know Your Enemies. And so most of you, I think, will recognize this simple phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are three of our enemies. And really, if you make devil plural and say world, flesh, and devils, those are our enemies. World, flesh, Satan, and Satan's minions, the demons. So... At the start of this, I read Revelation 12, and let's look at Revelation 12. Um, Pastor Kaiser did an amazing thing. Too many pastors preach on Revelation, and they do a really bad job of it. But our pastor preached on Revelation, and he did a really good job of it. And so, in preparation for this, I read four of the seven sermons he preached on Revelation 12. 17 verses, seven sermons. I also read the one in 20, about the thousand years, the binding of Satan. So because Pastor Kaiser spent countless hours studying Revelation and a lot of minutes preaching Revelation, um, I can just spend a few minutes talking to you about what he had shared with us. There are five characters in the text of Revelation 12 that I want to remind you of. They're in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 17, the last one. So, in the first verse, we meet the woman, and the woman is Zion. And Pastor Kaiser explained why that is Zion, why it would have been obvious to a Jew at the time why it was Zion. It embodies the patriarchs, Israel, Moses, the law, Judaism, and ultimately Christianity, which was the culmination of all that had been spoken of in the Old Testament. In verse 2, we see the child, and the child is Jesus, the Messiah. In the third verse, we see dragon, and our text explains there is no ambiguity. This is Satan. This is the old serpent. And then in the fourth verse, there are these stars. His tail, the serpent's tail, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. These are the fallen angels. These are the demon hordes that joined with Satan in rebellion. And then in the very last verse, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. He couldn't get at the child who had been taken to heaven and so he attacked the other children of the woman and so that's all believers all believers from that time our first enemy is satan and so let me ask answer a few questions or address a few aspects of satan first i'm going to say okay what is satan where does he come in to play what is he what was he Created to be? What did he declare himself to be or to become? And what did he truly become? So, Satan and all angels are spirits, immaterial, immortal. And so, in this, they're like God. God is spirit, immaterial, immortal. Satan is a person. As are the persons of the Godhead, as are we, as are all of his fellow angels and demons. Satan is a creature, like man, like us. He was created by Jesus, as all things in our world were created by Jesus. In Job 38, verse 7, when God is rebuking Job, he says, All the sons of God sang when the earth was created. And so at that time, Satan was a son of God. He was among these angels singing at creation when the earth was founded. And Satan had not yet fallen when God pronounced the creation very good at the end of Genesis 1. Because it wouldn't have been very good if Satan and the other angels had fallen. So that's what Satan is. He's a spirit. He's a creature. He's a person. What was he created to be? Let's read Ezekiel 28. And Pastor Kaiser covered this earlier also. And so we can, again, just kind of summarize. I'll start reading Ezekiel 28 starting at the middle of verse 12. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So he was created an anointed cherub who covers. This is a phenomenal role that Satan had. When you hear described, read described the Ark of the Covenant It was covered with the cherubs whose wings reached forward. And every year, annually, when the high priest went into there, he would touch that ark with that blood. God's presence was said to dwell between the cherubim. In the tabernacle and then later in the temple, there are these huge statues of two cherubim that reach from wall to wall. Their wings touch the walls and they touch together. These cherubim reflect the presence of God, and these are the protectors that are present there in the Holy of Holies. Satan is referred to here as the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And he had a role in Eden, the Garden of God. In Isaiah 14, we read what Satan instead wanted to be. And so let's read that. This is Isaiah 14, starting at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So there are five I am's here that Satan declared, I will, and then he said, ascend into heaven. Where was he? He was in the Garden of Eden. He was a cherub in the Garden of Eden, decked out with all of those beautiful stones, but he came to resent his place. I will ascend into heaven. In other words, I will escape Eden and go back where I belong, into heaven. Two, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will rule over all angels, all demons. Three, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will rule over all men. Fourth, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will share in God's glory. And fifth, I will be like the Most High. That's where he wants to be. He doesn't want to be on duty in the Garden of Eden. Regardless of how privileged that was, he did not want to be there. He wanted to be like God. He tempted Eve with that same promise. You eat that fruit. You will be like God. And she took it and ate, gave it to her husband. He ate, and they came to know good and evil. They became evil. So, in a sense, Satan did not lie to her completely. It's a partial truth. He did accomplish some of these things, didn't he? But he thought he could retain his beauty He was perfect in beauty. He was the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom. Yet, in his rebellion, he became ugly. He became hideous. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. The next section is what Satan became. And so I'll give you 14 titles of Satan or character traits of Satan. Prince of this world. And so he became the ruler over fallen men and angels. Prince of the power of the air. Emperor of the atmosphere. And if you look at the picture that Hannah drew for me, you can see that's what's intended here. He rules over all of this. He is the God of this world. He fuels the spirit of this present age that we live in. He is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, meaning that he brings that worldly influence into all of the hearts of all fallen men. Ruler of demons, Beelzebul, the lord of the flies, he lords over them. He is Satan. Fifty-two times this is used of him in Scripture, and I think that's a really nice number for us to remember. Because every time we come to church, we can remember every week of the year, Satan is our adversary. His name means it, and he means to use that adversarial role seriously against us. Devil, Diabolos, the slanderer. That's used 35 times concerning him. He is the accuser. We read this in our text. The accuser of the brethren was thrown down. He is the tempter. Jesus called him this. He told his disciples of his temptation by Satan, and that's what he called him, the tempter. He is a liar and a deceiver. Again, Jesus called him this, calling him a liar from the beginning, meaning in the garden, one who deceives the entire world. He is the serpent of old, emphasizing again the deception of Adam and Eve. He is the great dragon, beautiful And in one of the sermons, Phil describes that beautiful red dragon, but terrifying and destructive. He is the destroyer, Apollyon, Abaddon, the locust-like demon that terrifies during the last days in the destruction of Jerusalem. And he is the evil one. Now, this doesn't mean that he is just evil himself. This means that he must propagate that evil to others, especially to any that are seen as pure or undefiled. That's what demons most want to attack, the pure and undefiled. So our first enemy then is Satan. Second enemy, demons, Satan's angels. I'll read, I'll skip to a few texts and just read these briefly. We won't spend too much time on them. But Deuteronomy 32, 17 is this. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And so we're hearing here of essentially the Israelites turning their back on their true God. The word here for demons, we, we might read a variety of words in here, but the translation is rulers or lords. These Israelites were worshiping these idols, which were in reality demons powers, rulers, and lords behind those idols. Leviticus 17, 7. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. The word here describes a particular form of demon, a he-goat. And it was popular for the Israelites to practice in the desert places the sacrifices to this he-goat that they'd kind of inherited from the Canaanites before them. Psalm 96, 5. Psalm 96, 5, we read, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All the gods of the people are idols. The word here implies emptiness, nothingness, but... The demons behind this emptiness and nothingness are very real, and they can capture these people's hearts and spirits and trap them. Psalm 91, verse 6, just a page back, the pestilence that walks in darkness, the destruction that lays waste at noonday. It's believed that that destruction that lays waste at noonday is an evil spirit that's laying waste. To those in its path. And then Isaiah 65, verse 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord, Jehovah, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. And so we have two gods referenced here Gad and many. And the first one, fortune or troop, and the other one, destiny. And so, again, you've got this aspect of fortune-telling, telling fortunes foretelling the future. We learned from uh, Pastor Kaiser that not all demons are free. There are demons that have been chained up in the abyss for a long time. We know that, however, that there are some free. Jesus himself freed legion. Remember when he showed up, they said have you come here to torment us before the time these demons know more than we do in many regards they knew that judgment was coming they knew their time was limited and when jesus showed up they said are you here to torment us before the time and then he banished them into the swine at their own request and then the swine ran into the sea they they killed them all the demons that possessed them briefly but legion was then free he was not sent to the abyss yet in second peter 2 we read this in second peter 2 verse 4 for if god did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and then he goes on to talk the rest of this but these are specific angels that at the time of Noah were sent to the abyss, never to be removed from there until final judgment. So there are demons, thankfully, that have been removed from our world and will never return to it. But Legion was returned to it, and we know that Satan will be returned to it. And obviously, this accomplishes God's purposes. Yet we have a role to play in dealing with the demons that have been left here on the earth. Now, the character of demons. Morally and spiritually unclean, we know this, and yet their intellect and their will are twisted. The demon-possessed, especially the most egregious examples that we see in the, in the New Testament, they were often nude, they were superhuman strength, everyone was terrified of them, they hung out in cemeteries, graveyards, boneyards, These people would often cut themselves so that you could see that there's just this evil, there's this evil within them, and they're harming the very host that they're living in, but they don't care. It it gratifies them in this twisted way. Demons are described as sensual, greedy, corrupt, deceitful, adulterous, all the things opposite of what we're supposed to be and all the things that can reflect the depth of human depravity. They oppose God and His people. They're intelligent, and they've been around, as we heard earlier, for 6,000 years. And so they know a lot, a lot more than we do. Some have knowledge of the future. We know that there was this girl from whom Paul exercised the demon, and she had been making money foretelling the future for people. Demons can work miracles. They can implant impure thoughts in our minds if we are vulnerable to them. They can cause us pain, inflict disease upon us, even kill. And yet, they must have permission from God to do such things. So, the question is, why would God allow them to do such things? And that relates to us. Are we exposing ourselves, making ourselves vulnerable to these demons? Ephesians 6.12, and let me, I ran out of markers, so I have to start winging it. Ephesians 6.12 reads, and I believe this will be in my text next week on the armor. But 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places the demons are well organized and they are well disciplined you would think being as evil as they are that they would not be well disciplined but I imagine in North Korea North Korea's troops are well disciplined aren't they because they live in terror that all of this machinery of evil will be employed against them or their families if they step out of line even a little bit. We don't see any direct biblical example, however, of demons behaving in any way of disunity, disloyalty. That could entirely be through fear and intimidation. And yet, I was mentioning this to Phil yesterday. And I think one way in which demons might have their cake and eat it too is that they just proxy the fallen men to outwork this disunity, this rebellion. Because imagine, what is the benefit to Satan in running this worldly fallen kingdom of having two pagan nations slug it out and kill millions of people? What benefit is it to him? He's expending valuable troops that he could use against the church, but it's fun. Why did the Romans have the gladiator games? Because the people wanted to see it. The bloodlust excited them. Demons, I believe, can proxy, vicariously enjoy and experience this disunity through humans that they have great control over, perhaps even possession of their unity however is formidable because the enemy that they loathe unites them all they hate god they hate christ they hate christians so they will oppose us whenever they get the chance so that's the second enemy demons the demon hordes the third enemy is the world And I'll remain in Ephesians and read from verse, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you, He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So this is the world that Satan controls, that he holds sway over, this fallen world of men that can be heavily manipulated by his demons in order to plant thoughts in wicked men, have wicked men do the bidding. Christ, it's hard to believe that Jesus received rulership of the earth when he did, when he left the earth. When he came down from the cross, when he arose from the tomb, when he went to his father, he received, and he does rule the world. And so it's God's plan, however, to implement that rule slowly, progressively. And so through time, we see evil continuing to triumph as it has. But Satan knows the days are numbered. All the demons know their days are numbered. They are just living it up. In the meantime, while God continues to produce billions and perhaps trillions of humans that He will convert, that He will regenerate, that He will bring to heaven to rule and to reign with Him on this resurrected planet, cleansed planet. This world described by Paul in Ephesians 2, it's still our world in very many respects, We still feel all of this. The church advances in a culture here, in a country here, two steps forward, three steps forward, four steps forward, wiped out all the way back. You look at France. It was, you know, just such a, a star in the faith. I mean, John Calvin was from France. And yet, they murdered the Huguenots, slaughtered the Huguenots, and God has apparently removed His grace from them. They are a pagan nation now. They are, I wouldn't call them a Western nation anymore. They're very pagan. England's going that way. Germany's going that way. Will America go that way? Mm. Let me read what... Paul describes in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bring every, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This may be the text for the last sermon, I'm not sure, I haven't decided yet, but you can see that this is how we defeat the world, through the Spirit. The fourth enemy, this little black half a heart that's in that clear person in the center of your diagram, that enemy is in you. It is what the Bible refers to as the flesh, the old man. This man is described in Romans 7. I won't read that whole text. I'm sure most of you are very familiar with Romans 7. Uh, Paul is writing this, and we, when I was a new believer and the euphoria of salvation had faded and I began sinning again with a vengeance, I was horrified. How could I do this? How could I be this? I'm different now. And honestly, the honeymoon had lasted for a while. It had lasted for, you know, a few weeks. But there I was, falling back into my old habits. And then I read Romans 7, and I thought, wow, this is me. This is describing what I'm going through right now. It was comforting, but it was also concerning to me. Is this what I have to look forward to for the rest of my life? And too many Christians come away with from asking themselves that question, thinking, "Yeah. yeah, this is it. This is as good as it gets." But they're wrong. And so they're not living in the spirit as they ought to, and for too long I didn't live in the spirit as I ought to. We have the weapons at our disposal. We just refuse to use them. And so we must master the flesh. That old man we must subjugate that old man in order to use the weapons as god intends them to be used he says how to perform what is good i do not find in my flesh and it's not there you must go outside to god for that strength for those weapons so see we have a traitor living within us we all know the name benedict arnold he was a famous continental general in the army. Great general, very accomplished. Yet, he was envious of George Washington's position. And he was a traitor. He contacted British agents, sold them that he would sell out his army. It was discovered. And he, has, he escaped to England. But he has forever, his name has forever been known as traitorous Judas Iscariot same thing we don't name kids these names these days you don't name kids after traitors I've been apologizing to every Brenda I've met in the last six eight months Karen I'm sorry I, there's a uh, there are two ladies at the bank I go to one is Brenda my sister's name and one is Karen and so when I first met Karen I said oh Karen you're so sweet I'm so sorry she says yeah just hung your head I want to read a quote from Indwelling Sin in the Believer by John Owen. God is love, 1 John 4:8. He is so in Himself, eternally excellent and desirable above all. He is to us, He is so in the blood of His Son and in all the inexpressible fruits of it, by which we are what we are, and wherein all our future hopes and expectations are wrapped up, against this god we carry about us an enmity all our days an enmity that has this from its nature that it is incapable of cure or reconciliation destroyed it may be destroyed it shall be but cured it cannot be i want to mention two things and these are to kind of build on what I've said, but they're a little different. First, in an advanced culture such as ours, and I I don't just say advanced, let's say a wealthy culture such as ours, it is prone to materialism. The culture in Jerusalem at the time of Christ was prone to materialism. The Sadducees were denying the spirit world even existed. How could they do that? There's so much evidence in the Old Testament that the spirit world exists, and yet they were denying it. They did that because they were immersed in this material world it's all they saw it's all they lived for and I believe we wealthy nations tend to suffer this it's the direction that everything is taking us and this diminishes our thoughts as a culture it diminishes our thoughts of the invisible and the supernatural this is a quote from a survey by George Barna Now, it was conducted 10, 12 years ago, but I really doubt anything has changed. Most Americans, even those who say they are Christian, have doubts about the intrusion of the supernatural into the natural world. Hollywood has made evil accessible and tame, making Satan and demons less worrisome than the Bible suggests they really are. It's hard for achievement-driven, self-reliant, independent people to believe that their lives can be impacted by unseen forces. I believe that's the world we live in. That's the country we live in. That's the culture we're immersed in. And we are affected by it. We have to fight against it more than Christians in Africa who are faced with the supernatural. We are not. And so we can easily ignore it, let it slide. Like I said, put off battling against the flesh. Put off battling in the spirit it'll be there tomorrow the second point is that because of this because we are immersed in this material world and it dulls our spiritual senses we don't regard demons as our concern i really don't think the church does angels and god are supernatural angels and god will deal with our supernatural enemies it makes sense it's logical They'll let me deal with the enemies here, the people that are insulting me on Facebook. I'll deal with those enemies. So you see how easy it is for us to be seduced into thinking that isn't our job. The supernatural realm is nothing that we have to be too concerned about. And so we are sold a lie. We must be concerned about this. And it is pretty surprising how much of the Bible is filled with the supernatural. Angels are incidental. I preached on that years ago. And they are even incidental in the Word. They are here in a support role. They're not a main character in the Bible even. But they are so important, and especially those fallen ones that are wanting to attack you and your family all the time. This, that I've just mentioned, this ambivalence towards our spiritual enemies, is, I believe, an abandonment of our duty. We are deserters in the spiritual war till we're, be, we're fighting if we're not taking it seriously, far more seriously than much of Christian culture is. And I, I know there are some of you that have always taken it very seriously. And I just repent of the fact that I have not always taken it seriously. And I want to change that. And so, Two points in closing. First, let's commit, especially in this month as we focus on this, to renewed vigor in the battle against our spiritual enemies in us, in our society. And let's remember, and we'll get to this in the future, let's remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world as well as greater than that part of us that will not be relinquished until we're taken to heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word which guides us to truth that is truth and cracks open our minds and dumps all of the garbage out that we learn from a world that's fallen, from a world system that is controlled by Satan and his minions. We pray, Father, for clarity. We pray for courage that Your Holy Spirit would fill us with a desire above all to please You, to overcome the weakness of the flesh, the unwillingness of the flesh to submit to the direction of Your Spirit. We ask You now to make us faithful to You in this and have us to be lights in our culture. We thank You now and praise Your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.